Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Today we're back in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. We're on the second part of how to approach a holy God or approaching a holy God. If there's one thing that I think that we can agree on, there are many things that we are in disagreement about, right? Correct? There are just things we do not agree in as a society, political, cultural, even in this church, there's some things that we cannot agree on, such as the very purpose of why God allowed us to create sour cream. Compared to why did God just even allow it, right? You know, it's like the spiders and snakes. Why is that not that stuff there? But there's one thing I believe that all of us can agree on, and that's the annoyance, the annoying act of someone who does a humble brag. You know what I understand? Have you ever heard that phrase, a humble brag? A humble brag is defined by Webster's as to make a seemingly modest, self-critical, or casual statement of reference that is meant actually to draw attention to one's admirable or impressive qualities or achievements. It's the one who says, I'm humble, but yet I'm really bragging. Let me give you an example here. There should be one here on the monitor. Here's one, uh, one annoying fella who says, I saw a homeless man in front of Walmart, and I was only getting one thing because I didn't have much money. But instead, I bought a case of water and gave it to the man. I gave him the last of my money, and I walked away crying because I just felt God praising me for putting others before myself. That is a humble brag. Now, before you all run to the bathroom ready to gag and throw up, we realize that the center of this story, as you look at it, is this person is actually promoting himself. In his telling of this story, he is the hero and the almighty God of the universe, the ultimate power of the universe, is actually praising him and glorifying him for his selfish act of sacrifice. We might have some other people who humble brag, maybe in certain ways. I used to love it on, I didn't used to love it, I'm using that sarcastically on one uh, uh, radio station. I won't name it, but it sounds like a fish. And they would say, let's call in and do these, uh, what's, what's the phrase I'm looking for? These random acts of kindness. So everyone would call in, and I'm thinking that you're, you're calling in to say, this person did this for me, and I couldn't, I couldn't believe that this person, just randomly, this person I don't know, did something for me. But in reality, as you listen to it, it was just people doing humble bread. Oh, I was just walking around, and I randomly saw this guy, and I did something kind for him, so on and so forth. It's like, really? That, that, that seems to be the difference. God, I think of that scripture where it says, don't let man uh, sing your praises. You know, let God sing your praises. Well, that's the humble brag. That's, if there's something annoying about someone who does that. Well, last week, we considered the parable of the widow who relentlessly pastored a wicked judge for justice. And from that parable, we learn that God hears the prayers of his children and that he desires to bless us with his wonderful gifts. However, our prayers, we learn, must align with God's will, his word, not our own, to really have any chance of those being answered in the affirmative for us. 
Our prayers must align for his will for our lives rather than being self-seeking prayers. The basis for this confidence in approaching a holy God, how you and I as sinners can approach a holy God, that confidence, that boldness uh, of approaching God in prayer is because of his character. Is that we focus that God is wise, he is kind, he is mercy, he is graceful. Just to name a few, he is tender hearted towards his children. He loves his children just as a father or a son will go to his 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 father or his mother and, and in boldness ask for something it's because of the character of that person that father that mother they know that 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 parent loves them cares for them but as we come in today's passage we're going to see an annoying humble brag as Luke continues Jesus' instructions to his disciples by relating another pair about pride and humility and settles then a conflict about who is allowed to approach him for a blessing. We're going to read Luke chapter 18, 9 through 10. Again, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. The first two verses are up here on the screen. But it is here where Luke writes that Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. You may want to underline that. That's going to be key. He's writing to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So two things. They, they felt they were righteous, and they treated because of that, they treated others badly, poorly. He goes, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Father, I pray that you open up our minds and hearts to this ancient text, an event that happened years ago, whether true or not, but it's used as a parable to teach us your word is true. And Father, we want to learn from it. We want to learn from these two men what you're trying to teach us, what you're trying to encourage us, what you're warning us about. So may your Holy Spirit have free work. May we be uh, uh, refrain from distractions and, and, Lord, that we may focus on how we are to respond to this word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to give you some observations. The first is the problem. What, what, what's the problem that Jesus is trying to solve? And what we see here is Jesus continues to instruct his disciples on how to approach a holy God. We have to understand that many times Jesus' parables would leave his disciples an audience shaking their heads in bewilderment and wondering, what does this parable mean? We saw that when he did the four soils. They went to him privately and said, what in the world does this mean? And many times, what in the world are you trying to teach us? However, this time Jesus plainly states its purpose and its meaning right in the beginning of this parable. In verse 9, he said, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and because of that, they mistreated others. They looked down on others. So this is the intended audience. This is Jesus' parable, remember, is a mirror reflecting what your character truly is. Serves as a mirror to those who feel secure in their own good work. They are confident that God will vindicate and receive them on the day of judgment because of their own self-righteousness. When we read that phrase, they trusted in themselves that I asked you to underline earlier, it means that they persuade, to urge on, to incite, to prevail upon one's own mind. So in essence, when it says that they're trusted, they spent their mental energy trying to convince themselves and to persuade themselves that they were good people. And then they had to not only do that mentally, they had to do that outwardly. Now, you and I can understand that because to be honest, 
I think that's one of the things that we do too much today. Many times you'll see this on TikTok or other things where, where a father and a well, a father and a mother will put their children in front of a mirror. And they're trying to do this uh, for good reasons. But they look in the mirror and say, I am strong. I am powerful. I, I can do anything that I, that I put my mind to. I am, I, am, I am attractive. You know, these self-help motivations. And adults do the same thing, right? We listen to these things. You know, you too can be the president of the United States. And that's, that's just not true. But yet we're trying to do something good of it. But, but what we're teaching our children is to look at themselves and to brag about themselves as they look in the mirror. However, the mirror really should be telling them something quite different. The mirror of scripture. In this case, this man, this Pharisee, has persuaded himself that he is good. They work at convincing themselves of their own righteousness and justification. In other words, if I were to stand before God, I am vindicated. To be righteous means to be upright. However, as this man says that he's righteous, that means to be upright. that, That he's following God's proper standards and actions. I I am a righteous man. I I am doing everything that God requires of me. However, as you and I know from scripture, it says that none is righteous. In other words, none follows God's proper standards and actions. There are none that are upright. And yes, I am talking to you. You are part of that none. No, not one. He goes on to say that no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now look in the mirror and start saying that as you open up your day. That would probably depress you. It's like one pastor was saying on Twitter, he was, everyone was jumping all over him for stuff. And he says, you know what? You think you may be offending me by what you're saying here on Twitter, but let me tell you, I read the Bible. I know exactly what God thinks of me. The Bible has a lot worse things to say about myself. But then we see God's mercy and grace. One of the many problems is this sinful and wrong thinking that I am righteous, that I'm justified, that, that, that I am good with God, is that it leads one to pride and it causes them to look down on others and to judge themselves or to compare themselves with others. And you always notice is that we always judge or compare ourselves with someone much, much lower than us. You know, there's not too many of us that says, well, look at me. Look how good I am. I'm probably just as good as Mother Teresa. Boy, me and Jesus, we're about like that. We're doing all this stuff together. Now we usually compare ourselves to the worst of the worst. Secondly, let's consider the setting. So that was the, 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 the observation of what is, who his audience was. But now we're going to consider the setting. Illustrate his point, he compares two men who go to the temple to pray. Thomas Schreiner writes this, comments this on the place they're going to pray. It's uh, pray. It's there on the monitor. He says it's the temple. The temple was a central pillar for the Jewish religion. And as we see from First Kings, that the Lord had promised to answer prayers, that to answer prayers that were directed to the temple the place of his residence where God resided. Prayers at the temple were made twice a day, typically at the hour of burnt offerings, and thus prayer is a public event. So in this case, this is a public event that this man is going to. 
David sings in Psalms 27, one thing I ask for the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So in, in this setting, in those days, they would go to pray at the temple. Now you and I pray anywhere. We pray here at the church, pray at home, we pray at work, we pray on the, the freeway. My wife was praying the other day when I almost ran into somebody, a whole line of cars. There's prayers all over the place, but in these days, prayers was a public event where you would go to the temple and pray. Thirdly, now as we move from the setting, we want to look at the characters in the parable. The first is a Pharisee. Again, quoting Dr. Schreiner, he knows that the Pharisees were, popular, were a popular lay movement in Israel. They taught all Israel to keep the Torah, the law of Moses, so that the Lord would fulfill his covenant promises to them, all the blessings that God had promised them that we read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, teaching them that all of Israel should be pure and devoted to the Lord. The Pharisees emphasized a, emphasized a strict interpretation observance of the Mosaic Law. You, you and I might call them fundamentalists today or legalistic. And those are words that are, that are used in, the, in, the, in a poor sense, but there's good sense in those words as well. In both the oral and the written form, they were to obey a strict form of it. They were the main critics in opposition of Jesus' ministries. They were both feared by men because of the laws and the rituals they would impose on them, but also respected due to their position in the religious and cultural life of the day. However, there's not much to be admired in this Pharisee as you and I continue in verse 11. Look at that with me. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's standing by him, we'll see. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Here's an ancient humble brag. Impressed by his own good works, he begins his prayer by thanking God that he is not like other men. Now, of course, he compares himself, as I said, to the worst of humanity rather than the best. Now, at first thought, this prayer, thank you that I'm not like other man, men, isn't too much of a bad prayer. I mean, there have been times that I have thanked God myself for protecting me from following my family or my friends into sin or God's providential plan in putting me in a safer environment than many of the people that I grew up with. And so there are times, Lord, thank you that, that I did not wind up into a life of drugs and alcohol like many people that I know. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you've given me a, a great wife and that we've been married now on Tuesday, 36 years, right? I thank God for that. I thank God that he, he has delivered me and my family out of a place that was really difficult for us early in our life and my children are growing up in a better place. So there's a sense in which I thank God for that and maybe you do as well. However... In this case, this man is not thanking God for God's work, but his own work. This man is not close to offering any type of gratitude for God's blessing in his providence or in his protection. But he's reflecting on his pride-hardened heart. He then begins to throw contempt on the tax collector who's just minding his own business, also offering up prayers. Like an expert marketer, 
He advertises his religious rights that he believes justifies. Now, this guy is the original Instagrammer, right? He's letting everyone know, here's who I am. Here's the mirror. Here's that mirror pose. You know, he's wanting everyone to know how good he is. In contrast, Jesus then describes the second person, the heart attitude of the tax collector in verse 13. But the tax collector, now look at his posture, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. Now, the second man was a tax collector. Dr. Schreiner writes that tax collectors were notorious in Israel since they collaborated with the hated Romans and were known for their corruption for taking excessive money for themselves. In essence, they they were legal uh, legal thieves. They they were able to rob with with legal authority. As you may recall, one of the men Jesus chose to be his disciples was actually Matthew, who himself was a tax collector. In several weeks, we're going to look at Zacchaeus, another tax collector who comes to Jesus. Just like today, there's not much love lost for tax collectors. Nonetheless, this man showed great humility in both his posture and his petition. In both his posture and petition, he shows much humility. Unlike the Pharisee, this man is prostrating himself, not able to even lift up his head in any type of pride. His head is down. You can see that the, the Pharisee is up. And he's saying, look at how good I am. I thank you. And the other man is not able to say, just God, be merciful To me, a sinner. His petition was a simple recognition. Get this. His petition was a a simple recognition of his state before a holy God. His cry is simply for mercy. I don't deserve this. Hand me mercy. Give me prayer. These two men were polar opposites on the religious, political, social, and cultural spectrum. At least is how many people perceived them. The Pharisee would have been respected while the tax collector despised by those that were listening to Jesus' parable. Now I want to bring you out of the parable for a moment. And we're the ones who are listening to Jesus give this for the first time. Maybe we're reading it for the first time. But here's, this is where we are. In this case, you might have noticed that there are many times that the parables now have a twist. And listening to this, these people were listening, where is Jesus going with this? In this case, we read in verse 14 that Jesus makes a shocking statement that is the twist in how people are perceiving these two men. Look at verse 14. Jesus concludes, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The spiritual truth that you and I learn from this parable is not that Pharisees were bad and tax collectors sometimes were good. But that man is not justified by works, rituals, adherence to sacraments or to ordinances. Turn, if you would, take your Bibles to Galatians, if you would. To the letter of Galatians, there in the New Testament. 
right after 2 Corinthians, I believe. This saying that Jesus just said that this man, the tax collector, would be more justified than the Pharisee would have been very shocking, shocking excuse me, to Jesus' listeners as they believed that strict adherence to the law of Moses would make them acceptable to Yahweh. This, this Pharisee, no, he's doing everything right. The, the, the Roman or the tax collector, he's doing everything wrong. So in the balance, it should be that the Pharisee is more in balance or is more justified. He has more weight. He's been doing all the things that God has expected of us for centuries. The Apostle Paul, however, writes, if you're in Galatians chapter 2, look at verse 15 with me. Chapter 2, verse 15. Paul writes, and he's speaking to the Jews, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Not justified by adhering to the law of Moses. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, by adhering and obeying the works of the law of Moses, I'm adding a little bit there, no one will what? Be justified. Now that's a strong, shocking statement. I mean, these Jews have been adhering or trying to adhere to the law of Moses for centuries, for millennia. And all of a sudden, Jesus is saying that was not enough to justify one. So I just want to take a moment to first to understand that word justify. We used it a little bit in Sunday school today. The step Bible defines justified, it's here on the monitor, is to, to, to vindicate to declare one righteous, to put someone in a proper relationship with another, to make things right. It's usually referring to God's relationship to mankind, to humankind, implying a proper legal or moral relationship. In other words, things are in balance. Things are reconciled. That's what justified so Jesus is saying, and just hold that up there just for a moment, Ben. Jesus is saying is that the tax collector is the one who will be declared righteous. He will the one be the one vindicated when he stands before God. The Pharisee, who's done all the things that were required of the law, that could be debated, obviously, because he didn't do it with the heart, but he did it for himself. He says that type of prideful obedience will not vindicate you in the day of judgment. Back in Galatians chapter 3, I think you're still there, are you not? Look at chapter 3, just turn a little bit over. You may not even have to turn in your Bible. But in Galatians 3.10, look at 3.10. We read this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, this Pharisee says, I do all these things, but if he failed in one letter, he's guilty of all. That's like you may obey the speed limit, you may obey uh, the rules of the road, but if you turn, or if you turn without turning on your turn signal, you're guilty of breaking everything. It's pretty much what he's saying, something in a simpler way. One theologian writes, finally, 
the means by which sinners are justified, vindicated, declared right in God's sight, is only through faith, a confident trust in, in, God, in the person of God. We've, we've spoken about that before. It is not through doing the works of the Mosaic law. This was a way Judaism taught people to get right, is do the law, right? But neither was it through baptism or some other good work. Many teachers throughout the ages have taught that this work or that work will make you right with God. Uh, the Roman Catholics, you must obey, I think there's seven sacraments, but only, but to be honest, if you're a priest, you can only do six. If, if you're not a priest, I think you can only do six. These are the things that you must do. Muslim, these are the things you must do. Mormonism and so on. And to be honest, as independent Baptists, we had the same type of things. You had to do this, 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 and that. Everyone has those types of things. Galatians is trying to dispel that old nature of having to work. But what we see is that nothing makes us right with God, vindicated before his eyes, except through faith, confident trust in the person of God. Again, going back to the theologian, he says, instead, God saw fit to justify, declare right sinners by his grace through faith in him. This was one way to not trust ourselves to reconcile us to God. Instead, the theologian writes, it's a humble thing to admit only God could get us right with himself. It is not something that I can do within myself. Romans 3, right? There's none righteous. There's none that seek after God. All of our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. Going back to the theologian, he writes, God did all the work by sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, and he raised him up for our justification, for our vindication, for our declaration of not guilty. We only must trust him to apply that work in our lives to be saved. So if you're standing before heaven, you know, before heaven, how should I get to heaven? It's only by our faith in Christ. And it's not just our belief. There must be a sense in which we're moving towards him. So Jesus sets the problem. Self-righteousness leads to pride, leads to death. So how do we solve that? How do we be, become vindicated? How do we stand, approach before a holy God? The problem of self-righteousness is simply the gospel. The gospel contains these three main truths, or excuse me, four main truths that must be shared they must be understood, they must be assented to, and they must be embraced. Hence why your testimony is not necessarily the gospel. It must have these four things. Are you ready? You know them. It must have God. God is good, holy, and wise. We must understand that he is the God that created everything. We believe in, the fa we believe in God the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven. And earth. We must believe that one day we will stand before a holy God. Secondly, we must understand that the problem is that I'm a sinner. That our first parents rebelled. And because of that, we have inherited their guilt. And we ourselves sin, not because we are sinners, or we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. And hopefully that made, that made sense. It did in my mind. So it's coming out right in my mind. If it's not coming out of my mouth, then I, I don't know. We'll have to work on that. I'm a sinner. I'm hostile in mind to God. I'm disobedient in nature. I'm deserving of God's full wrath. We must understand that. We must embrace that. 
The Pharisees surely didn't. Let me see that Jesus was sent by the Father. He perfectly obeyed God in all that God called him to do. And in that, he embraced the cross, bearing the shame and the reproach and the very wrath of God, and then gave us his righteousness. And our only response is faith. That's the last one. God, man, Jesus, and then our response. Our response to that gospel is to repent and trust that God accepts Jesus as my substitute and my redeemer. That's the answer. How can I stand before a holy God? How can I approach? It's only through the grace of God and mercy of God that he accepts me, that I trust that God has accepted the work of Christ on my behalf. One might wonder, though, how does just believing, accepting the gospel lead to our justification, our vindication? The answer is found in the doctrine of justification. And before you fall asleep, I want to just give that to you there. Look at the monitor. I want to explain what does it mean to define justification. He says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God. We talked about that in ACC. That's why I really want to encourage you to come to our Sunday school class. Because if you're not, you are missing a lot of information of what the Bible tells us. You are missing a foundation that leads us to help us to explore and to give God thanks and gratitude in our main service. So that's just a plug for that. But it's an instantaneous legal act of God. In other words, it's not a long thing. It's something that God does immediately. And it's a legal act of God. It's not something that I'm doing. It is a work of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven. And Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. That's very important. So he looks at us and says that Christ's atonement has now paid for your sin. I now forgive you for your rebellion against me. And then in the same way, it says, I'm now going to be thinking of you as Christ's righteousness as belonging to you. He declares us to be righteous in his sight. So when he sees me, when he sees Rob, he sees Randy, and others of you who are professing, confessing Christ, he does not see your sin. He sees Jesus Christ. And that's what you and I need. That's what it means to be in Christ. You see that phrase, in Christ. You can Google that phrase or go to a Bible thing and write just that phrase, in Christ, and see how many times that's in Scripture, that you and I are hidden in Christ. We are in Christ. That's what it means when we do baptism, that's what baptism is showing, is that now I am in Christ. Why? Because I have the righteousness of Christ, not my own. That's why we cry out, be merciful to God. Give me the righteousness of Christ. Now, I want to do just a sidebar. I think I just have a few minutes. And let's go back to the Pharisee. Because I can understand why legalism is so attractive. We, we use the term Pharisees, pharisaical or pharisaic. You know, if, you're le- if you believe in certain legal things that you must do this, you can understand people call you a Pharisee or legalistic, fundamentalist, all, all wrong terms in, in many ways, right terms in others. But I actually can understand it. 
Growing up, I had a lot of rules that I followed because I went to a Christian school. And whether you went to a Christian school or the church, in my day, there were many, many things that you had to adhere to to be a Christian, to, if your confession, for us to look at you and say, yes, you are a Christian. You had to wear your hair uh, short, which meant that it did not touch the ears, it did not touch the collar, and if you pushed your hair down like this, it would not touch your eyebrows. And we had hair checks every other week or so to make sure that we followed that. Uh, we could not go to movies, okay? Uh, don't even go there to buy popcorn. Just don't go to movies. Don't even walk by it. Don't look at the thing. Um, you could not go to the bowling alley because they served liquor there. You could not go to the rolling skate, skate because, they, because they, um, played, they played rock and roll music. An evangelist once told me that if I listened to rock and roll music, it would turn my blood green. And so I couldn't do that. And so I, I could not have any type of communication with girls because, you know, pretty much they were evil and they'd leave you down the wrong path, all Proverbs, all that type of stuff. And um, so these are, and I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not barking. I, I love my upbringing, but this is kind of how we were brought up. Now, they didn't say that was not so much how you were saved, but if you were truly saved, these were the things that would show it and prove it. And if you weren't, then God was mad at you, God was angry with you, and you may not be saved. Now, as you and I laugh about this, and we might criticize this, I understand it. Because if, I, if you give me rules to follow, then I know how to make you happy. You know, I've shared the story before that Brandon and I, when he was turning at a certain age, we were struggling quite a bit. And I, just, I remember being in a car. We had just pulled up to the house. We were on Geneva and Anaheim at the time. I said, Brandon, do you even know how to please me? And he goes, no, I don't. So for 16, 17 years, I failed to even show that. I thought I was, but I hadn't. What's that old phrase Mike uses it? Happy wife, happy life, right? Let me know what I need to do. And if I follow those rules, then I'm good. So I understand that. Hey, God, just give me 10 things, right, that I need to do that I know then that I can go to heaven and that I'm a good person. We all want to be good people, right? So I understand the, the impact on that. However, then that becomes a boast in ourselves as this Pharisee was. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace are we saved through faith and not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, we're not saved by our works, but we are saved through the works of Jesus Christ. So I have nothing to boast on. Paul says that. When I look in the mirror, I can look and say, yeah, I'm not a pretty good person. My heart betrays me. My mind is right there. But then I can look and say, God, be merciful. See, I look in the mirror and I see myself and I try to persuade myself, right? I try to persuade, trust myself that I'm a good person. But that self-reflection of scripture is to say, ah, Rob, you're not. But God is merciful to me. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, I believe I might have it here on the monitor. It says, this is us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once were, walked, following the course of this word, fo- world, excuse me, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of the This is who we are. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is us in our earthly born state. No exceptions. However, that wonderful word in scripture, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. This wonderful gift of salvation is not earned by our own self-righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ, both active and passive. And I think you remember what we've shared. Christ's active obedience was where he went to the cross and died for us. His passive obedience is where he obeyed the law perfectly. He honored his mother and father. He did all the things that God required of him. He was passively obedient. All of that comes to us because of what Christ did. Now, to help us to understand how you and I, because of that, because it's not of ourselves, we are not to come before God in a humble brag, trying to vindicate ourselves. We must come, as he says, in humility. So to understand how to approach God, a holy God, in humility, Luke includes an encounter between Jesus and his disciples back in Luke uh, 18. So go back to Luke 18 and look at verse 15. He gives us an illustration. Now they were bringing, speaking of the disciples and others, or actually uh, people, now they were bringing even infants to him. So we're, we're talking babies now. They were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Very different than our church. I mean, we see children. It's like, come on, we just love them. But Jesus called to them and said, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you in verse 17, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter in. So how does humility work in here? It says they were bringing even infants. We're talking little children. Now, they're not bringing them for baptism, but for dedication and a blessing, similar to what we did with Leah Mulligan last week. And we did, that was just a joy to see her and her family come up and want to train her in the way of the Lord and, 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 and praying for her salvation and for that family. However, in the ESV, it comments that in most ancient cultures, children were regarded as a burden until they were physically strong enough to contribute to the family. By the way, it seems like that mindset is back in this world today. For to such belongs, going back to the ESV, it says, for to such belongs, uh, for to such belongs does not mean children automatically belong to the kingdom when it says that, but that the kingdom belongs to those that are such. That is, those who possess childlike trust, like an infant who relies on their parent for everything. That is childlike faith and a trust in Jesus. He's talking about humility, how we come before the Father because of his character, knowing that he is going to give us all that we need, that there's nothing within ourselves. At least babies have an innate cuteness that makes you want to feed them and play with them, right? You and I don't have that. We're pretty ugly babies, people, as Scripture gives us. That's why Jesus warns that, the, that to enter into the kingdom of God, one must be humble. 
In Matthew 5, 20, Jesus warns, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember, we just saw this guy, his humble brag was, look at what I'm doing. And anyone look at them and say, there's no way that I can be godly like that. They, they, are, they are way heads above me. And Jesus said, you've got to be above them. Jesus actually says, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And who can do that? There's no humble brag that'll, that'll, that'll convince anyone. You can't convince yourself. Well, I suppose there are people who do. They're mentally ill and they convince themselves that they are God or they can be like God. Earlier in our study of Luke, we had read that Jesus said, you are those who justify or make yourself right or vindicate yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is abomination in the sight of God. Even today, there might some of you who might say, but Rob, look at what I've done. Look at who I am. Me, maybe to your wife, look at me. I'm this, I'm that. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, God knows your heart. He knows you intimately. You may be able to fool yourselves, but you cannot fool him. However, scripture also encourages us you see here in the monitor, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. In 1 Peter, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time that he may exalt you, reflect, reflecting on what Jesus, I'm sure he was reminded or re remembering what Jesus had taught him through that parable. We learn from the letter, James's letter, that God gives more grace and that God opposes the proud, but gives more grace to the humble. So then, we and I have this promise that if we are to draw near to God, that he will draw near to us, and that he will cleanse us our hands, and he will cleanse us as sinners, and he will purify our hearts. Lastly, James tells us to humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Interesting, James did not hear that firsthand, most likely. He was told after Christ's death because James was one whose pride would not allow him to accept Jesus, his own brother, as the Messiah. Jesus is teaching us as we come to the closing is that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we must display perseverance, speaking of the widow. We must display repentance, humility, and childlike trust from these two parables, these two parables in the story that we told these last two weeks. If we're going to approach God, we must have perseverance, we must have repentance, we must have humility, and a childlike trust. Here's my question. Are these four traits that mark your life this morning? Are you a man, a woman, of persistence in prayer, of humility, with a life marked of repentance when sin comes? Is your life marked with a childlike trust that God will supply all your needs? Or are you trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? Are you trying to vindicate yourself before God and before others and even yourself by your good works? So you will fail, my friend. And I encourage you to come and trust in the works of Christ. For that's the only way that you and I can enter into heaven. As Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for they shall inherit the earth. May we do so. Let me close with this scripture here, well, the second close in Galatians, Paul. In Galatians, Paul writes this. For through the law, I died to the law, through the works of the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So here's where I want to get to this next line that's underlined, this next passage. As you and I, as those who profess and confess, profess and confess Christ, the life we now live in the flesh by trying to do good, we now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, through the working of the law, through my own self-righteousness, then Christ died for no purpose. Let us never say with our actions, with our heart, that Christ died in vain. And may the life you are now living not through self-righteousness. Should we obey God's word? Yes, we are called to obey. But we do not trust in that for either salvation or whether or not that God is ple- or, or is happy with us. We have a Father who loves us, but who calls us to obey. As the worship team comes up, we're going to take a moment to pause, to consider, to pray and respond. But this last verse I want to give you as a warning. You see here on the screen. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The Pharisee fell. The tax collector was exalted. I pray that you and I will be tax collectors today who cry out, be merciful to me, O God. With every head bowed and every head closed, I do want to take a moment just to pause and consider these two parables that we've spoken about the last two weeks. This illustration of the child And I want you to consider what the Holy Spirit may be calling you today. Are you marked by a life of humility? Or is your life marked by pride, fueled by self-righteousness, persuading yourself that you're okay, that you're a good person? I would ask you then just to pray and say, Father, speak to my heart. Let the mirror of your word reflect the real me that I may not fool myself, that I may not fool my family, for I know that I do not fool you. And then you respond to the Spirit's work in calling you to a life of humility, obeying God through love and gratitude for what Christ has done for us. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.